will or not. As you are turning there in your Bibles, in these next verses of Scripture, we see a prayer meeting taking place and another apostle being chosen. The first activity, well, who would argue with that? Uh, more than 120 people praying in the upper room, that would be awesome. Wouldn't that be an exciting prayer meeting? The second activity uh, is a bit more interesting. I would have really been quite satisfied to pass over that as I wanted to just draw out some of the key passages, but uh, Ken Byrne had to prod my thinking on this next text of verses. So uh, in the following verses, we'll be uh, making a few observations about the prayer meeting, and then we'll investigate a few thoughts regarding the choosing of Matthias as one of the apostles. In verses 12 through 26, there's approximately a span of 10 days that exists here. It is the period between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, some 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus is now absent, and the Holy Spirit had not yet descended upon them. And as we saw earlier in Acts chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit is promised. This is while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. They were to wait there, so they were to just put things on hold, now you remember, they had a job to do, Jesus had began to do and to teach. There was a work to carry on, but they were not to step out just yet as they were to wait for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. So uh, when they had come together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring your kingdom of Israel at this time? So just by way of review, they thought maybe this is the time that Jesus is going to establish his earthly kingdom, but that didn't happen just yet. They weren't sure. Uh, even... Um, uh, the, the, the Pharisees thought, well, maybe this is the time that, that he would establish his kingdom, and yet it wasn't that time just yet. So verse 9, as we closed last week, it says, After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So a couple different times, they're, they're standing there, they're looking up into heaven because of this great, miraculous uh, thing that has just taken place. Jesus has ascended, they've, he's, they've watched him leave their sight, and, and they're just standing there. I, I don't know that you and I would have done anything differently, but they were taken aback by everything that had taken place. And the bottom line is, why are you standing here gazing? He's coming back. And can I just say this? He is coming back again someday. Are you ready? So as we come into verses 12 through 14 here, if you would follow along as I read this passage. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So you see here, this is the upper room prayer meeting that has taken place. And it's kind of interesting because as a, as a kid growing up at Woodcrest Baptist Academy, we, uh, we had uh, this little prayer group that we got together with. Uh, and when we got into high school, for a period of time, we called it the inner circle prayer room. 
And then also we got real spiritual. We called it the upper room spirit, you know, prayer group. But, you know, we always thought about this time as being a special time where God's people came together and prayed. So we thought it would be kind of neat to have this little group called the upper room prayer room or prayer gathering. So we would do that. But they had returned from Jerusalem and then assembled in this upper room and began to pray. The apostles, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, and a host of about 120 in total were all assembled together here. And many of these folks who did not believe Jesus prior to his resurrection had now come to believe. And so they're up here. But here's the interesting thing. They were united in prayer. That's the huge thing. They were united in prayer. And, and what I'm seeing as a trend across the United States is that churches are not assembling in prayer anymore. It, it's, the, it's the meeting that is getting left out. It's the meeting that seemingly is not as important as other meetings. But I think we need to come back to this coming back to where we are spending time in prayer for one another. You know, possibly they were in prayer regarding the coming of the Holy Spirit. Possibly there was a host of other things for which this united group was praying. The Bible doesn't necessarily tell us for what they were actually praying. It only tells us that they were steadfast in prayer, about 120 or so folks. But the question that came to my mind over and over as I was reading this passage was two questions. Number one... What might be so important enough for us to gather and earnestly pray? What is it in our minds that would be so important that we would be so earnest about spending time together in prayer because we need to see God's hand at work? I wonder what it is in our lives. You know, I started to kind of answer that question in my own mind. What would it take for me to just really see and earnestly desire a united group of, and a body of believers come together in prayer? You say, well, maybe it's cancer. And, and you, know, you know as well as I do, when we face difficult circumstances, whether it's a cancer or an illness or some other type of medical situation, it seemingly takes those kinds of events to really drive us to our knees. Would you agree? I mean, we weren't too earnest of prayer in prayer before that, but now that it's here, we really got to seek God's face, and we're going to seek healing, and we're going to seek for wisdom for the doctors to know how to deal with it. And it's those kinds of things that really drive us to our knees. But the question also is there is, why weren't we praying for that before we got the cancer? Or before we got the illness? Or before we went through this catastrophe? Because we just don't sincerely see the need at times. Maybe it's the fact that you need a new job, and things are really getting tight financially. And, you know, because... Uh, because the money has run out and you know, it's been several months without a job, we're really starting to wonder, how do we deal with this? And we start going to our knees and we start begging God to show up because we don't have any other solutions. You know, our friends can't help us and you know, our parents can't help us and we seemingly have no one out there that's going to help us. So finally we go to our knees and we say, God, you've got to do something. Sometimes it's our children who have strayed. They're making poor choices. They're kind of living for themselves. They're kind of just living for the things of this world. It's breaking our hearts. And finally, it gets us to the point where, God, we can't do it. Isn't that the place where God always wants us? Is it not? Does not God want us in a place where we are totally dependent on him? Doesn't that, doesn't that resonate with God? <coughs> but what might be important enough to earnestly see the need to gather and pray unitedly as a body of believers. 
I would submit that it wasn't a cancer or a sickness. It wasn't a job need. It wasn't a financial need. It wasn't even about their children or any other thing that you can imagine. I would have to speculate, and it's only my speculation, that as they met in this upper room, this is a body of believers. Maybe it was for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was for wisdom and direction to do what God had, or what Jesus Christ had commanded them to do now that he was gone. But I would have to imagine it revolved around the things of God and being right with him and walking in fellowship and obedience to him. I can only imagine as this body of believers came together and united in earnest prayer. So the first question is, what might be important enough for us to gather and earnestly pray? The second question is this. Are we willing to earnestly pray? Are we willing to even do it? With so many people across the United States and churches getting rid of services left and right, I wonder, where is the avenue that we come together for corporate prayer? We just ask him. Are we willing to sense the desire and the need to draw close to God? And then maybe even a third question. What would you pray for? Turn your Bibles to First Chronicles just for a moment. First Chronicles, chapter 4. There's a familiar one here, a prayer, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. So as you're turning there in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, I want to read as what we've called the prayer of Jabez. And can I just say, honestly, just as this kind of little rabbit trail and just kind of a pet peeve, this prayer has been exploited to high heaven. You go to a bookstore and there's the prayer of Jabez for toddlers, and the prayer of Jabez for grandparents, and the prayer of Jabez for teenagers, and it's been exploited. Get the message of the prayer. Verse 9 says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother named him Jabez and said, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez called out to God of Israel, if only you would bless me. You see, I can remember going to the bookstore and they have these little prayer of Jabez coins. And people would be talking about how God is blessing them. They got a new home, they got a new car, they got a, a new job position and everything else because they start praying for God. God never said what the blessing would be. He didn't say, I'd give you a new house if you start praying this prayer. He simply said, God, I want your blessing. It's pretty generic, really, when it comes down to it. It's pretty generic. He said, but God, I want your blessing. I need you to show up. And here's what he says. If you would only bless me, extend my border. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm. Why? So that I will not cause any pain. And God granted his request. He said, God, extend my borders. Keep me from harm. It wasn't for a new house. It wasn't for a better life. It wasn't for a better income. It wasn't for anything else. It was, God, I want your blessing. I think that's a pretty significant prayer. Does anyone else want God's blessing? Guess what? Blessings don't come without responsibility. See, sometimes we want the blessing without the obedience. And we simply need to surrender ourselves to God in obedience before we have any, can have any expectation of his blessing. We can't have one without the other. There's another one here I just want to highlight just for a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 3. If you would turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3. 
I want to begin reading with verse 7. It says, Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Verse 9. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? I love this. This is Solomon praying and asking God. For what? An obedient heart to judge your people, to discern between, between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And I want you to pick up one more thing here in this couple of verses I've read. I'm going to read on, but pick up these couple of thoughts. Nowhere did Solomon here say, this is all mine. He says, I want to, let's read it again, your servant, that means I'm yours, among your people, you have chosen, so give your servant, your people to discern, he says, these are yours. You know, it really does start with surrender. When we come to God in prayer, when we go to God in prayer, it really has to start with surrender. God, I'm yours. Therefore, you do with me, you answer the request any way you see fit. That's where it starts. That's what Solomon exemplified here. Now look at verse 10. It says, now please the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for a long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to understand justice, I will therefore do what you have asked. And then he says, I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there, is ne there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, for both riches and honor, so that no man in any kingdom will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Isn't that amazing? That God chose to bless him even with things that he did not ask for because he had a discern because he asked for obedience and for a discerning heart. Question, what might be important enough for us to gather to earnestly pray? Might it be for God's blessing? Might it be for wisdom and discernment and obedient heart? Are we willing to earnestly pray for those things? See what I find in my own life and maybe you can relate is that we're pretty self-sufficient people. Two hands and a foot, anybody, right? We're pretty self-sufficient. We do what we want because we can, for the most part. How often do we truly surrender ourselves to God and say, God, I need you to show up here. I need you to work. And what we found is that the disciples, the apostles, they were in a new era, a new chapter, a new segment of life, if you will. Jesus had descended, or had ascended. The Holy Spirit had not yet come. And I can only imagine that they're up there in this upper room praying, 
and saying, God, we need wisdom. We need discernment. You've exemplified a, a life of, of service and ministry, but how, how do we do this? And they're all collectively earnestly praying. So what might be important enough for us to gather and earnestly pray? And are we willing to do it? In the next section of verses here, back in our text in Acts, find something a little bit interesting. And this is kind of an interesting section because it's almost one of those sections that you kind of just kind of flippantly go over on first glance. Uh, but I had a gentleman last week say, hey, I can't wait to see how you're going to deal with next next passage next week. Quite honestly, I wasn't going to address this one. But since he brought it out, I will. It's the choosing of Matthias in verses 15 through 26. Let me go ahead and read that passage of verses. It says, During these days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David spoke in advance about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and was all lauded a share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst and burst open in the middle, and all his insides spilled out. Yuck. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field is called Hekaladama, that is, field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know the hearts of us all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take a place, take the place in this apostolic service that Judas left to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and let the lot fell to Matthias, so he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here we see the text of Scripture that deals with the calling of Matthias, or the choosing of Matthias. Um, and as we said, Jesus now ascended into heaven had left the apostles with an exhortation, which creates an interesting circumstance, as mentioned earlier. Uh, the exhortation was to simply what? Wait. Don't really do anything. So the question becomes, why did they act of their own free will? Why did they choose another uh, apostle to replace Judas? So many have debated whether or not the disciples should have even taken this action uh, to even choose a replacement. And this was kind of some of the questions that came up among several last week. So why did they even do it? Um, what was the importance? What was the significance? What was the hurry to get this thing done? Well, as I was reading this last week, Bob Deffenbaugh lists several factors in favor or, or support of the apostles choosing a replacement. So I'll, let me just give you what he says, and we'll make some comments about it. Number one, apparently the group of more than 120 people agreed to choose another apostle, led by, by, led by Peter. So maybe there's this thought that as they were gathered together, as they were praying, they sensed the need that Judas had betrayed and he's gone now. So we have to, you know, we have to get the number back to where the, where, where the number is, what, the same number that Jesus chose. So we have to come together and pick this one. So maybe, maybe in this group of 120 plus people, there was a unanimous, 
a unanimous agreement that we need, or a, con, a, a general consensus that we have to choose another one. Number two, the decision appears to have been made following a time of earnest prayer. You know, they were in prayer. We're not really sure what for. Maybe for God's wisdom, maybe for discernment, maybe for the Holy Spirit that was coming. But this decision appears to have been made following this time of earnest prayer. And then Peter, later with the other 11, seems to include this new addition. So there was acceptance of this man. And so, well, maybe it was the right thing since Peter, and we see later just a uh, chapter over in chapter 2, verse 4, and then again in chapter 6 and verse uh, 2, uh, Peter says, uh, myself along with the other 11. So now Matthias is included in that group, and, and maybe this is what God had for us, or for them. And then number four, uh, finally, nowhere in Scripture is there any rebuke or condemnation or criticism regarding their decision to choose another apostle, though they were to wait before doing anything. So for these reasons, possibly it was quite appropriate that the apostles chose the replacement. But there's still that lingering thought. You were told to wait. And why were they told to wait? Because the Holy Spirit was come. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, This Holy Spirit would come upon you, and you should receive power. They could not do the, the, work, the work that God had called them to do, except the Holy Spirit be leading them, be guiding them, you know, indwelling them as they went forward. And that had not taken place yet. But maybe it was quite appropriate that they did what they did, since there was no criticism. There's no uh, condemnation or rebuke regarding the decision to choose. But this gentleman also lists several factors that seem to question the wisdom of the apostles in choosing a replacement. So let me just paraphrase a couple of those as well. Number one, Jesus' command had clearly said wait. So in doing so, did they sidestep God's command and exhortation? Maybe they should have waited. Just a few short days and the Holy Spirit would have come. And then they would have possibly acted more in a line with what God had asked them to do. Number two, they chose to take action without the Holy Spirit to guide them. And that's, a, that's a careful place to be. We need to make sure that when we make decisions that we are not making it of our own wisdom, of our own judgment, of our own intellect, of our own experience. We need to clearly wait for the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct. Number three, Jesus chose the other apostles and he hadn't given any clear command to replace Judas. So should they have done it? He hadn't given any clear command to do so. Number four, this is also interesting. Matthias is never referred to again specifically in the New Testament. So why is there so much attention given to the process or the man who is never again really mentioned? Should they have done it? Should they have not? We never hear of him again, although he's one of the other 11. But specifically, his name is not brought up Number five, their decision to choose a replacement was not prompted by the Lord's command, a biblical imperative, or the Holy Spirit's leading. It would appear that the apostles were acting of their own interests. That would be the assumption. And then number six, and this is kind of the one that I kind of agree with. Though some would argue the process used to choose Judas' replacement seems to be dubious at best. One could argue that the selection of Matthias was carried out in an Old Testament manner by the casting of lots. This method was not given to the disciples, nor is it ever used again in the New Testament to determine God's will. The method of casting lots sidesteps man's dependence on God and his leading 
though God can and has control of the outcome of casting lots in some circumstances. And we find that in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. But here's the question I come away with. They were told to wait. And this was a question that was posed to me. Why did they not wait? At first I said, yeah, I have no idea. I don't know why they didn't wait. Some would argue and say they did the right thing in choosing. Some would argue and say they did the exact opposite of what God would have had them to do. And then I think about my own life. And maybe you can relate to this as well. Why don't you wait? Why don't I wait? I think as a whole, we're pretty impatient people. The disciples thought there was a need. Here's what We can sit and argue the rightness or the wrongness of this decision. In my mind, I, I can't imagine casting lots being a positive thing. Although, I had one person who I believe knows the Bible and is very read. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. It was an Old Testament practice that was accepted by those who followed God. Maybe so. But in my mind, it's one of those things that when I see that they cast lot for the garments of Jesus, who should get them? I don't look at that as positive. Anybody else agree? I don't think the process of casting lots to choose a man who would follow the commands of Jesus should have been determined by casting lots. That's my opinion. Could be wrong. So we can argue the rightness or the wrongness of the decision not to wait. But here's what I think did take place. I think oftentimes the disciples were in situations where they had to make the best decision with the information that they had. Maybe it was right to choose, maybe it wasn't. But there's something for us to learn here. And the question that came to my mind is this. How can I know if God is leading us to do something? How can I know if God is leading me to do something? How, how do I know if God is asking me to go here, or to go there, or to stay here, or to get that, or to not get that? You know, how do I know when God is leading? The disciples and those that were up in the, in the upper room, they made a choice. Judas is gone, we've got to replace him. Right or wrong, we're going to do it. How do I know if God is leading me? I think three principles came to my mind here. First of all, it's this. You need to seek wisdom from God. Seek wisdom from God. Well, how do I do that? Well, James makes it very clear. These are just three principles that every one of us can apply and should apply to our daily living. Is God leading me to do this or that? Number one, seek wisdom from God. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. What's the key? Verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doub doubter is like the uh, surging sea, driven, tossed by the wind, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. He said, listen, if you need wisdom, you need discernment, ask me and I will give it to you. But when you come to me, you better have faith that I'm going to do it. Can I just say this? Why do we go to God and ask him to do something if we don't expect him to do something? That's a waste of time. We need to pray with expectation, believing that God is going to work. It may not be the answer that I want, it may not be in the timing that I want, but when I go to God, I have to believe that he's going to hear me and that he's going to answer in his perfect timing according to his perfect will. 
And if I don't believe that, I'm wasting time. But how can I know if God's leading? Seek wisdom from God. And then number two, equally important, is to search the Scriptures. Is this thing that is in my mind or this compels compulsion that I have to do something, does Scripture forbid it? Does it encourage it? Does it contradict in any way? Get in God's Word and find out. Search the Scriptures. In Psalm chapter 119, one of the biggest chapters in the Bible, Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your Word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. God's Word will shed light on the direction that you should go. In fact, it says in Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord. Find out what he wants you to do. Get in God's word, and he'll give you that leading. But then he goes off. <laughs> I love this next verse. We don't read this enough. But Joshua chapter 1. I want to begin reading verse 8. He says, This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it day and night, so that you may carefully observe everything written in it, for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. What's the principle here? Get in God's Word. Whatever it says, do. If it says don't do it, don't do it. But seek wisdom from God, search the Scriptures, and then number three, surrender yourself to God's leading. You see, so often what I found in my life is that I kind of do what I want to do. And before you say, well, that's terrible, you do the same thing. Surrender yourself to God. God, what do you want me to do? Are you willing to surrender? You know, the whole idea behind surrender is to give up your rights. And if I could say it this way, it means to yield. And I kind of have a pet peeve with that whole process of yielding. And maybe you do too, but you see, my kids would argue that they're a better driver than me, and I say I've got three times the experience, and I'll argue that point. But, here's one thing I disagree with when I'm driving down the road. You see, I'm going this way down the highway, and every so often as you're going down the highway, there is a what? There's an on-ramp. You know what is in the middle of that on-ramp? It's a sign that says what? Yield! Why is it that somebody's got to speed up to 97 miles an hour to get in front of you if they would just wait three seconds and come in behind you? Because they're unwilling to. Why is it that God is going this way and he's asked us to join the direction that he's going, but we've got to speed up and go our own direction because we are unwilling to? And God has asked us to surrender. So when I go to him and I say, God, I'm not sure whether I should do this or that, Am I willing to first of all say, I surrender my will, my rights, my life to do whatever you want me to do? See, when we're willing to yield, it says, I'm willing to fall in line behind you. And that's when he says in 1 John that whatever you ask in my name, I'll give to you. Why? Because you're following the leader. And whatever is good for us, we're going to get anyway. I like what someone said in Sunday school this morning. Aren't you glad that God doesn't answer all of our prayers? Because sometimes he gives us better than what we ask for when we're willing to yield. But if we're not willing to yield, we're not willing to surrender. We're going to go be led astray.
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, familiar verses, it simply says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he'll guide you on the right path. And then verse 7, I like this. Sometimes we forget verse 7. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. But don't consider yourself to have all the answers. Surrender. Three things I want to leave you with. Number one, God's leading will never contradict his word. God's leading will never contradict his word. So, one in doubt, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first God in everything. Whether it's a career choice, whether it's a move in location from one house to another, one town to another, one state to another, whether it's a decision that you think is important or not, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all the other things will fall into place. Number two, God's leading will require you to trust him. That's Hebrews 11 and verse 6. God's leading will require that you trust him. In Hebrews 11 verse 6 it says this, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. If you don't have faith, you can't please God. Whatever he leads you to do, it will require you to trust him. Are you willing to do that? And then number three, God's leading will never cause you to violate your conscience. Ever. You've heard the phrase, one in doubt, don't. In Romans chapter 14, it says, whatsoever not faith is sin. Whatsoever is not a faith is in. If I can't do what I'm about to do with a clear conscience before God, knowing that I'm walking in fellowship with Him, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. God's leading will never cause you to violate your conscience. In doing so, separate fellowship from God. So, how can I know if God's leading? Number one, seek wisdom from God, search the scriptures. Number two, and number three, surrender yourself. And understand, God's leading will never contradict his word. God's leading will require you to trust him. And God's leading will never cause you to violate your conscience. You could argue the rightness or the wrongness of whether or not the disciples chose, were right to choose Matthias. It's kind of interesting that they would give the whole process and that they cast lots and that there's two different people they're choosing from, but then he's never again mentioned. I don't know why that is. But it ought to make us think about this thought. Why do I do what I do? What's the motivation? What is the, the motive behind my actions? Am I walking in fellowship and obedience to God? Or am I walking in such a way that would bring pleasure, satisfaction, enjoyment to myself? I think it's there just so we can learn from it. It's in God's word, so he has it for us to, to learn from it, right? It's there. So what can we draw from it? Make sure you're walking in fellowship with God. See, in both of those circumstances, the prayer room, all of us need to be walking in fellowship with God. The choosing of Matthias, all of us need to be making sure that we're walking in fellowship with God. Are you walking in fellowship with God? Let's pray.